Hello, Anna here. In this episode, you will hear the audio from a Facebook Live video I recorded on the 20th of September, 2021. In it, I provide an update on the research and academic literature regarding fertility, menstrual changes, COVID-19 itself, and vaccination against it up until that date. I cover animal and theoretical modelling, clinical and real-world research with human subjects with female reproductive organs and male reproductive organs in relation to both infection with coronavirus and vaccination, address fertility-related vaccination claims, discuss menstrual changes and how these combine to inform personal decisions regarding vaccination. This is the third research update I've recorded. The first was on lactation, COVID-19 and vaccination against it. The second was on pregnancy, COVID-19 and vaccination against it. Both of these are also available in the previous episodes of this podcast. In the audio, I mentioned a full reference list is available in the show notes itself. Um, Unfortunately, the full list of references doesn't actually fit within the character limit of the podcast show notes this time. So I have instead provided a link to my website that has a transcript of this episode also with a full reference list at the bottom. Feel free to share this with anyone who you feel may be interested in this information. Enjoy. Hello, my name is Anna Cusack. I'm an author, a doula, certified motherhood studies practitioner and a parent mentor. So I have uni postgraduate qualifications in clinical exercise physiology, specialising in rehabilitation. And I also spent many years working as a health professional in community and hospital settings. So this is the third uh, research update that I have recorded. The first was on lactation and vaccination against COVID-19 and the second was on pregnancy. But in this video, I will be discussing the academic scientific research and researcher perspectives published to date in relation to fertility, menstrual cycles, COVID-19 itself and COVID-19 vaccination. So obviously there are limitations here. I'm one person, not a team of professional researchers and I can only give you the information from studies that I have been able to republish in English. So the reading I have done is comprehensive, but I'm not trying to position myself as an expert in this area. I'm relaying the findings of the people who are actually the experts in words that you can hopefully understand. So the date of this recording is the 20th of September, 2021. All sources I mentioned are referenced in the video or audio notes. And if you're listening live, I'll come back and add those shortly. As time passes, new information will come to light as more studies are released. So I would encourage you to stay up to date with that. Using the Google Scholar search engine is the easiest way for the majority of people to access the abstracts or summaries of research papers. And in many cases, the full text of the articles are freely available as well. So as at the time of this research review being recorded, there is much confusion and hesitation regarding vaccination amongst those who are trying to become pregnant or are concerned with their future fertility both within Australia and abroad. In this video, I will only be speaking to Pfizer and Moderna mRNA vaccines um, and touch on AstraZeneca, which is also known as Vaxevria, because those are the three types available here in Australia where I'm situated. So the advice we've been receiving over the past six months in the space of conception, gestation, pregnancy and beyond has been confusing to say the least. 
There has also been much speculation around vaccination and its potential effect on fertility and menstrual cycles, particularly on social media. So as is the theme with these presentations, I have put together, and medical research in general, it's important to note that people who were pregnant or actively trying to become pregnant were not purposefully included in clinical trials for the various COVID-19 vaccines available. This is pretty standard practice in drug research. Some people who conceived just after or just before being vaccinated and also consented to being followed up by researchers. Um, and I will get to those study groups in a moment. Before that though, it's worth noting that in terms of drug research itself, medications generally go through what's called a developmental and reproductive toxicity study in animals. In August, 2021, Bowman and colleagues released the results of the BNT162B2 vaccine, so that's the Pfizer, Developmental and Reproductive Toxicity Study. So in this study, they gave female rats the human-sized dose of Pfizer, so on a dose-to-body weight ratio that is the equivalent of, being, of a human being given 300 doses of the vaccine instead of one. They also gave them four doses of that quantity. So at 21 and 14 days before they mated, and on gestation days nine and 20. So on a body size basis, the rats received the equivalent of 1200 doses when humans would only receive two. At the end of the gestational period, the authors performed cesarean sections on half of the female rats and dissected their babies. The other half of the rat subjects gave birth to their young as rats generally do and were monitored to the end of lactation. So the researchers state, and I quote, there were no effects of the BNT162B2 on female mating performance, fertility, or any ovarian or uterine parameters, nor on embryo, fetal or postnatal survival, growth, physical development, or neurofunctional development in the offspring through the end of lactation, end quote. So these results will allow them to move on to formal clinical trials where humans who are trying to conceive can be included and studied along with uh, along their whole fertility and gestational journey, rather than just relying on retrospective data from humans who volunteered to have their doses already. And this will obviously take a while though because human babies take much longer to grow than rat babies do. So what do we know about COVID-19, vaccination against it and human fertility? The straight up answer is not heaps, but I'll tell you what we do know. As I mentioned before, we know that small numbers of people who were in the initial clinical trials of the vaccines either fell pregnant unexpectedly during the trial or were in the very early stages of pregnancy and likely didn't know they were pregnant yet. A paper from July 2021 by Garg, Sheikh and Pal tells us there were 11 people who received the Pfizer just before or just after getting pregnant and six people who received the Moderna and none of those people experienced miscarriages. Another study I have spoken about in the previous research update on pregnancy is called Preliminary Findings of mRNA COVID-19 Vaccine Safety in Pregnant Persons. It is a 2021 paper by Shima Bukuro and colleagues, and it is following people who identified as being in the periconception period or pregnant when they had their first vaccination between the 14th of December, 2020, and the 22nd of February, 2021. These were mostly white healthcare workers in the USA. 
that there are 3,958 people involved in that study and 92 of them, so that's 2.3%, had at least one and potentially both of their Pfizer or Moderna vaccinations in the periconception period, which they define that time period as being from 30 days before the start of the last menstrual period until ovulation. Now these are small numbers and we don't have complete data from those people yet because not enough time has passed. Some of them won't be due until November this year. So all we can really take from that is that some people are still getting pregnant once they've had one, if not two of their vaccination shots. There's another paper by Zork and colleagues from August, 2021. And I actually didn't come across this paper in preparing the pregnancy research update but it tracked 2,456 pregnant persons who received one or both mRNA vaccination doses, either in the six weeks prior to conception or up until 20 weeks gestation, they were included in the study. So the first thing is that this one by Zork and colleagues is a preprint paper. That is, it hasn't undergone peer review by other experts in the field just yet. The second is that people did get pregnant after having a vaccination close to conception. The third is that when they followed up their participants at 20 weeks, 20 weeks pregnant and ran the data, they found a 14.1% raw spontaneous abortion, that means miscarriage, rate. When they used direct age standardization to a reference population, so that's kind of like an imagined control group from existing data sets, they found the rates of loss between, to be between, sorry, they found the rates of loss between six to 20 weeks were actually a bit lower at 12.8%. So it sounds weird, but researchers generally don't include pregnancies at less than six weeks in their loss calculations, which seems really odd on face value, but at least the data is comparable. So just to clarify that, those initial 14.1 miscarriage rate and 12.8% standardised loss rate might sound high, um, but between 11 and 16% is considered a pretty standard rate of pregnancy loss in the developed world prior to 20 weeks. So this paper tells us that people did get pregnant after having at least their first dose and being vaccinated uh, preconception or in the... Sorry. This paper tells us that people did get pregnant after having at least their first dose. And it also tells us that being vaccinated pre-conception or in the first trimester doesn't seem to increase the risk of miscarriage. Obviously more data is needed here, but that is a good start. There are very few papers looking at fertility directly. And that is again, because they needed to do those developmental and toxicity studies um, I described earlier before it got the green light to do human-specific fertility studies. Um, I did read one just tonight that is underway, but it's not expected to be finished until October 2022. So they're obviously following people for quite some time. So the paper I am referring to next is by Safray and colleagues and was conducted in Israel. And it's called Stopping the Misinformation, BNT162B2, so that's Pfizer, COVID-19 vaccination has no negative effect on women's fertility. So that's a pretty big title considering it's a small study and it has various limitations, but I'll explain it to you. First thing here is that it is also a preprint paper. 
which means it hasn't had full peer review by other experts in the field yet. This needs to happen before it is officially published in a medical journal. This study is an odd one because it's looking at fertility data for couples who were patients at an Israeli hospital's IVF clinic. So most couples using IVF already have something going on with infertility, but not all because not all couples have compatible body parts to make a baby. 47 of their female clients were involved in the study. These women had IVF cycles before vaccination and also after they'd had their vaccination. And the study looked for any changes in the number of eggs retrieved, the number of mature eggs and the fertilization rate of those eggs in the lab as per the IVF process pre and post vaccination. They then looked at the embryos for number and quality before and after vaccination too. In short, there were no changes in any of those measures pre and post vaccination. The authors state, quote, these findings, therefore, are the first step in showing that the BNT162B2 vaccine, Pfizer, has no effect on IVF treatment parameters nor on the pregnancy rate from IVF, end quote. So while they were at it, Safray and colleagues also wrote a paper titled BNT162B2, Pfizer, mRNA COVID-19 vaccine does not impair sperm parameters. This one is also preprint, so not peer reviewed yet. They tested samples from 29 men with normal spermogram results, pre-vax and 14 men with abnormal spermogram results pre-vax as well, and compared this to the quality and quantity of sperm produced by each patient post-vax. They found no differences pre and post-vaccination. Interestingly, in this study, they referred to another paper by Gatchi et al. from March 2021 called Semen Impairment and Occurrence of SARS-CoV-2 Virus, that means coronavirus, in semen after recovery from COVID-19. They reviewed samples from 43 sexually active men who'd recovered from COVID-19. They found a quarter of these, so 11 men who'd recovered, had problems in their sample. So eight of them had no sperm in the seminal fluid and three had low sperm counts. Unfortunately, they don't provide a control group or any follow-up data to see how long it took for the sperm counts to recover or if they did at all. They just mentioned that these rates of abnormal samples are well above the general population expected ranges. They also found worse uh, sperm samples or semen sample results were associated with worse bouts of COVID-19 symptoms so I realise most of you probably came here to listen about female fertility and vaccination, um, but sperm is also required to make a baby. So I think this paper on male fertility and the effect of the disease itself potentially um, is worth mentioning, particularly, particularly if those worst symptoms are avoidable through vaccination. So next I'm going to look at two prominent claims regarding vaccine dangers to fertility, and then I'm going to look at menstrual changes. So if that's what you're waiting to hear, bear with me. One thing that has been circulating is that the mRNA vaccines target a protein called syncytin-1, which is needed for formation of the placenta and continued pregnancy. The rumor says there is no mechanism to stop the destruction of syncytin-1 once it has commenced by way of vaccination. Okay, so let's look at the info around this. 
First of all, all proteins are made up of smaller building blocks called amino acids. There are only 20 amino acids and every protein we come across is made up of those 20 put together in all different orders and combinations. The mRNA vaccines work by inserting mRNA into the cells. That mRNA is like a recipe that tells the body how to make the spike protein made by the coronavirus that causes the COVID-19 disease. So your body makes a small amount of spike protein like stuff in response. Your immune system then attacks it by making new antibodies against it. So that if you get coronavirus, you have some of those antibodies ready to go to fight it. So back to syncotin one, the protein needed for the placenta. It is made up of 538 amino acids. The protein targeted by the Pfizer vaccine only shares a sequence of four of those 538. So Lou Culligan and Iwasaki from Yale School of Medicine wrote in the New York Times in January 2021 that our team compared the coronavirus's spike protein to placental syncotin 1 and we found no notable similarity between their amino acid sequences. They also say they analysed blood serum from women with COVID-19 and didn't detect any reaction between the patient's naturally derived antibodies and the syncotin 1 protein. So unfortunately, I can't find if that data was formally published in a medical journal, but I will leave the link to their editorial in the reference list for you to view if you choose. Another claim I have seen is that the lipid nanoparticles, which is basically like the shuttle to get the really fragile mRNA into the cells to do their recipe delivery work, accumulate in the ovary. And the second part of that claim is that this accumulation could affect the ovarian function. So before we begin this section, just want to let you know that the word lipid just means fat and nanoparticle means tiny particle. So lipid nanoparticles equal tiny fat particles. So this claim has arisen from a couple of theoretical reasons. One being there is concern in general about nanoparticle exposure and potential accumulation in the ovary because they are present in many other things we are exposed to every day, like makeup, processed food, and other health and personal care products, including other medications. So this is my very basic version interpretation, and I'm not a biochemist, but lipid nanoparticles are made of fats, like I said, and these are considered to be biodegradable. Your body is made up of around 25% fat, so it's generally thought that your body knows what to do with the tiny fat particles that are in the mRNA vaccines. So in the documentation provided to Japan's medical regulation authorities, Pfizer outlines the process they went through to determine what happened to the nanoparticles and where they went. The way they did this was by injecting rats with lipid nanoparticles that had a radioactive dye essentially mixed into them then they could see how much of the dye was at different body parts and organs at 15 minutes after, one hour after, two hours, four hours, eight hours, 24 hours, and 48 hours after injection. And from that, they could figure out the quantity of nanoparticles in each spot. So each rat was injected with 50 micrograms of lipid nanoparticles, like the ones that are used in the actual Pfizer vaccine. 
50 micrograms is only one-tenth of the dose given to humans, but the average Australian woman weighs 355 times the weight of the rats that are usually used in the experiments. So by weight dosage, um, humans receive significantly less than the rats did. So what did they find? They found that at 48 hours post-injection, 24.6 of the radioactive dye, and therefore the lipid nanoparticles as well, were still at the injection site. And 16.2 were at the liver. In males, 0.074% of the dye was in the testes, and in the females, 0.095% was in the ovaries. So I don't have a measure as to what toxic levels are in each body part, and 48 hours is as long as they monitored for. I'm thinking that's how long the dye stays radioactive for, but I can't give you any more information beyond what I've just stated, that a tiny amount did end up in the ovaries, but it's far less than the 7%, which is what I saw one online post and many, many comments claim. And that's pretty much all there is looking directly at fertility. As you can tell, we need a lot more research in this area, but early signs are promising that the short-term impact isn't much. Obviously, it'll be a long time until we have long-term data on the effect of either COVID-19 or vaccination against it in relation to fertility. It wouldn't surprise me if there's someone come up with stats around birth rates falling in countries with high vaccination rates soon. We're getting to nine months since Israel did their initial rollout. So I'm kind of waiting for that to come up. Um, it's unlikely we'll be able to tease out much info from that uh, because most developed nations have been experiencing a gradual decline in birth rate for some time. And we also generally see a dip in birth rates when there's an economic downturn and job losses, which you are probably aware is right now. So I'll be waiting for health research data rather than looking at vaccination rates and birth rates separately and trying to make any connection between those, but that's just my thoughts. Okay, I digress. We can't talk about COVID-19 vaccination and fertility without talking about menstrual changes. Menstruation is so important and so often overlooked in the world of research that still focuses largely on cisgender men and expects people with female sex organs to just slot right in with the male modeling. There is a study from Wuhan itself in China published by Lee and colleagues in September, 2020. This study looked at the menstrual info of 177 women who had had COVID-19. So 25% of them reported menstrual volume changes, so heavier or lighter periods. 28% had menstrual cycle changes of some kind, and 19% had a prolonged cycle duration. The average sex hormone profile in blood tests and AMH levels, which you might've heard of before, it's kind of a proxy measure of how many follicles or eggs you have left in your ovaries, was similar to age-matched controls. The authors conclude that the menstruation changes of these patients might be the consequence of transient sex hormone changes caused by suppression of ovarian function that quickly resume after recovery. So it seems like menstrual changes are happening in a percentage of women who get COVID-19. 
Likewise, there are changes being reported by some women in the US and UK, particularly regarding what seem to be temporary cycle changes after vaccination, and also in a minority of postmenopausal women and trans men who don't usually bleed. In the US, $1.67 million has just been granted across five universities to study the rate of menstrual changes in vaccination and also to tease out why it's happening. In the UK, 30,000 menstrual change related reports have been made to their medicines and healthcare products regulatory agency as well. Dr. Victoria Mayle is a lecturer in reproductive immunology in the UK and she wrote a piece uh, for the British Medical Journal published on the 16th of September 2021 about this. I'll read a couple of paragraphs for you with translations as we go. Menstrual changes have been reported after both mRNA, so that's Pfizer and Moderna, and adenovirus vectored COVID-19 vaccines. And that's what the AstraZeneca one is suggesting that if there is a connection, it is likely to be a result of the immune response to vaccination rather than a specific vaccine component. Vaccination against human papillomavirus, so that's the cervical cancer vaccine, has also been associated with menstrual changes. Indeed, the menstrual cycle can be affected by immune activation in response to various stimuli, including viral infection. In one study of menstruating women, around a quarter of those infected with SARS-CoV-2, that's coronavirus, experienced menstrual disruption. So that's the study from China I mentioned just before. Biologically plausible mechanisms linking immune stimulation with menstrual changes include immunological influences on the hormones driving the menstrual cycle or effects mediated by immune cells in the lining of the uterus, which are involved in the cyclical buildup and breakdown of this tissue. So side note that the lining of the uterus is maintained through other hormonal pathways in pregnancy. So this is unlikely to have any bearing on miscarriage rate as I spoke about earlier in this video and also in the last video. Um, I think she's more suggesting that changes in bleeding symptoms might relate to when in the cycle the vaccination is administered, but we'll have to wait and see. Research exploring a possible association between COVID-19 vaccines and menstrual changes may help may also help understand the mechanism. Um, she continues, so this is still a quote. Although reported changes to the menstrual cycle after vaccination are short-lived, robust research into this possible adverse reaction remains critical to the overall success of the vaccination program. Vaccine hesitancy among young women is largely driven by false claims that COVID-19 vaccinations could harm their chances of future pregnancy. Failing to thoroughly investigate reports of menstrual changes after vaccination is likely to fuel these fears. If a link between vaccination and menstrual changes is confirmed, this information will allow people to plan for potentially altered cycles. Clear and trusted information is particularly important for those who rely on being able to predict their menstrual cycles to either achieve or avoid pregnancy, end quote. So then comes the question, what should I do if I'm trying to conceive now or if I want to soon? Um, and the annoying answer is it's up to you. Talk with your doctors, talk with your partner if you have one, um, 
yeah, take into take into account the info around fertility, pregnancy, and lactation research. Keep abreast of more research as it comes to hand. I'd encourage you to think about your personal exposure to risks and to attempt to tune out from everyone else's emotional charge around this issue for a little while. And just do what you feel is best for you and your current and your future little family. So I hope this video was useful to you. Again, this is not instructive advice of any kind. You can tell that the research is still in its infancy. A lot of the data that is available there was not peer reviewed yet. Some of it was, some of it was not. Um, I really appreciate your interest in this topic and I thank you for tuning in. Bye. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast. Please remember to subscribe and leave a five-star review and share with anyone you feel may benefit from this content. If you'd like to continue the conversation, join me on social media at Anna Cusack Postpartum and head to my website www.annacusack.com.au to check out the ways we can work together. Please use the contact form on the website to inquire about having me run workshops with your client groups or book me for corporate speaking or professional development presentations. See you next episode.